0: It almost looks like you took the, the front part of a turkey skull and combined it with the back part of a duck skull and, and sort of
1: uh, smashed them together. This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Ryan Watkins.
2: And I'm Doug Lay. Today, in episode 75 of Parsing Science, we'll talk with Daniel Field from the Department of Earth Sciences at the University of Cambridge. He'll discuss his research into a 66.7 million year old bird fossil, which meshes up the features of chickens, turkeys, and ducks, providing the best evidence so far for understanding when groups of modern birds first evolved and began to diverge. Here's Daniel Field.
0: Hi, I'm Daniel Field. I'm a lecturer at the University of Cambridge in the Department of Earth Sciences. I'm a vertebrate paleontologist, and I'm primarily interested in the evolutionary history of living birds. And that interest goes back a pretty long way. Um, I was always interested in fossils and dinosaurs in the way that a lot of children are. But when I was about eight or nine, I became pretty fascinated with birdwatching too. And that's been a passion that I've held on to throughout my entire life. I'm a pretty keen birdwatcher, uh, even these days as a as a lecturer when I can find the time. And those interests in birdwatching on the one hand and paleontology on the other seem to me to be totally non-overlapping interests, I I never realized that they could possibly be linked in any way until around the time that I became uh, interested in studying evolutionary biology as an undergraduate student at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. And at that point, I really became interested in, in trying to understand more about how birds, this group that I had at that point been interested in for over a decade, had come to be Uh, birds are so diverse they're so easily observable there's so many interesting beautiful different kinds of birds that you can go out and see no matter where you are in the world learning more about how that diversity had come to be became a, a very interesting subject for me so i gradually became more and more aware of the scientific literature about the fossil record of birds that documents in some ways the origin of bird-like characteristics among dinosaurs, but also documents the early nature of major groups of living birds throughout the Cenozoic era after the non-avian dinosaurs were gone. That interest throughout my undergrad got me interested in pursuing a PhD along those lines. I applied to PhD programs, which took me to Yale University in the US where I uh, studied bird paleontology with Jacques Gautier, who is um, in some ways best known for being one of the first paleontologists to formalize the idea that birds are really nothing more
1: than a specialized group of dinosaurs. Modern birds are known to have originated at some point during the age of dinosaurs, referred to as the Cretaceous period. However, their early evolutionary history is poorly understood because of the limited fossil record of crown birds, modern living birds whose ancestors date back to a common ancestor. So we started out by asking Daniel to tell us more about discovering this important fossil, which he dubbed the Asterionis mastricensis.
0: The discovery itself sort of took place in in two separate stages because the bones were initially dug up in the year 2000. They were found by an amateur fossil collector named Martin van Dinther, who lives in Leiden in the Netherlands. And he picked up what at the time looked like a very uninspiring fossil specimen. It's pretty small. It's broken into four little blocks of rock. And really all you can see are a handful of broken limb bones poking out of the rock. So the specimen itself doesn't look really earth shattering in any way, but when you see the bones poking out, you can tell that they're hollow. So Martin recognized it as as possibly being a fossil bird because birds have hollow bones. So he brought this specimen to the closest natural history museum, which is in a town called Maastricht in the Netherlands and the uh, curator in charge of paleontology there is uh, my colleague, John Yacht. So he very gladly um, accepted and accessioned that specimen into the Natural History Museum there, but it never was studied in detail mostly because the bones poking out of the rock really don't look like they could possibly tell you very much at all. Really, they're just a few long bones in cross section. So the importance of the the specimen really wasn't clear at the time. But as I got to know John, he uh, mentioned to me that he had this this specimen that might be from a bird from the late Cretaceous of Belgium. The fossil was found just across the border from the southern part of the Netherlands on, on the Belgian side. And that got me very interested because for several years now, I've become really fascinated by the question of how birds survived the extinction event that wiped out the giant dinosaurs 66 million years ago. And one of the factors that has really limited our ability to know what happened to birds at that important point in earth history is the fact that we don't have a very good fossil record of birds from the very latest part of the Cretaceous, the very latest part of the age of dinosaurs. So even though that specimen didn't look particularly amazing and it really wasn't clear that it would become an important fossil specimen, the fact that the fossil was of the right age to possibly be important is what prompted us to take a close look at it. So the second part where we actually realized what we were looking at was a discovery that took place actually here in Cambridge when my student Juan Benito and I decided to CT scan this specimen. Uh, and that happened just before uh, the university shut down for the winter holidays in December 2018. And uh, so we we ended up with a fantastic Christmas present, actually, once we CT scanned the specimen and realized that we had a really important uh, fossil on our hands.
2: Almost ubiquitously, press headlines around the discovery of the Astriornis refer to it as a wonder chicken, or turducken, a three-bird roast popularized by Cajun chef Paul Prudhomme, in which a chicken is stuffed inside of a duck, which is itself stuffed inside of a turkey. Amused, Ryan and I asked Daniel how he describes what the Astriornis looks like and might have been up to during its life.
0: It doesn't really look like any living bird today, but it combines a lot of features that we see in living birds today. Because if you sort of look at various portions of the skull, it almost looks like you took the the front part of a turkey skull and combined it with the back part of a duck skull and and sort of uh, smashed them together. And that's pretty interesting because actually the skulls of duck-like birds and chicken-like birds are pretty different from one another. Duck-like birds and chicken-like birds are each other's closest living relatives. But if you think of the living representatives of those groups, the skulls are actually quite different. I mean, almost all duck-like birds have those uh, flattened spatulate bills that ducks and and geese and swans are famous for. On the other side of things, galliforms, chicken-like birds, have a much deeper non-flattened bill. And the architecture of the front of the face and the back of the skull in those groups is very, very different. So we had never really seen the skull of a fossil bird that seemed to combine the features that we think of as being diagnostic of, of duck-like birds and chicken-like birds before. And so it would have been probably a, a pretty strange-looking bird, but if you saw it sort of walking around today or, or flying around today, you'd certainly recognize it as a modern bird. And that has to do with the fact that this was a, a modern bird. It falls within the living radiation of birds. We think that the last common ancestor of all living birds probably lived somewhere between about, well, there's uncertainty on this point, but somewhere between about 75 and 100 million years ago. And by the end of the age of dinosaurs, there had been sort of a limited number of evolutionary divergences leading to just a handful of major groups of living birds being represented by the time the asteroid struck at the end of the age of dinosaurs. So this fossil falls within the modern bird radiation, but it sort of sits, we think, on the ancestral branch that led to the group that today comprises uh,
1: duck-like birds and chicken-like birds. As Daniel just mentioned, an asteroid strike 66 million years ago, killed off three quarters of life on the planet. And just today, a group of geologists and engineers reported that the asteroid hit at the deadliest possible angle, at 40 to 60 degrees and from the northeast. Doug and I were interested in hearing how Daniel explains the relevance of the Asterionis with regard to this mass extinction event.
0: Over the last few years, we've gotten better and better constraints on the timing of a a massive asteroid impact that struck the earth at the end of the age of dinosaurs. So there's still a little bit of an uncertainty in those estimates, but a paper that I've relied on pretty extensively that attempts to date that event has it at 66.02 million years ago. So at this point in Earth history, an asteroid about the size of Mount Everest slammed into the Earth, basically where the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico is today. And so actually underground, there's a a massive crater that partly overlaps the Yucatan Peninsula and goes into the Gulf of Mexico. And we think that impact happened about 66 million years ago. The time frame involved with respect to this fossil is really interesting. Because as best as we can tell, the fossil was alive somewhere between 66.8 and 66.7 million years ago. So this is a fossil from only a few hundred thousand years prior to the asteroid impact that that wiped out the giant dinosaurs. So we're talking about an organism that lived at a point in time quite proximal to, to one of the most significant global calamities in the, in the history of the planet. The age of the fossil is also uh, significant for another important reason. And that reason is the fact that the fossil happens to be the oldest direct evidence we have of modern birds in the fossil record discovered so far. So there's some slightly younger modern bird fossils known from Antarctica that are about 66.5 million years old. But this fossil at 66.7, 66.8 provides us with the first direct evidence that we have of a modern bird from the age of dinosaurs. So we know that there were modern birds older than this. We haven't found evidence of them yet, but this fossil falls within the sweet spot in terms of its age, being able to shed light, first of all, on the factors that may have influenced avian survivorship patterns across the mass extinction event because the fossil is so close in time to the end of the age of dinosaurs. But then on the other hand, the fossil sheds a lot of light on the nature of the earliest birds, because it happens to be the oldest uh, Cretaceous modern bird fossil that we have so far. So the age of the fossil being right at around 66.7 or 66.8 million years old is a a really significant aspect of the importance of of the fossil.
2: As the name of a new species becomes valid with the date of publication of its formal scientific description, that means that Daniel and his team got to name the Estriornis mastricensis, and early on in their article, Daniel describes their process for doing just that.
0: First of all, you know credit where it's due. The name Asteriornis was coined by uh, our our co-author Dan Sepka, who's curator of science at the Bruce Museum, and I really do think it's a perfect name because Asteria was this goddess of, of falling stars, so you know their relationship with the asteroid impact is apropos. But also. She is, in Greek mythology, transformed herself into a quail, of all things. So, of course, uh, being part of that chicken-like bird group in the present day, that's another sort of point of similarity. And also, in Greek mythology, to escape Zeus's amorous advances, threw herself into the ocean. So the fact that the fossil comes from these marine rocks makes it sort of a, a trifecta in terms of Asteria being a fantastic namesake for the fossil. But it was, it was a, definitely a process to, to get to the point of naming it Asteriornis. I wanted to name it Patogayo because uh, I thought it sounded cool and, and sort of uh, based it on Spanish uh, names for, uh, for ducks and chickens. And uh, Juan... Juan Guan, who's from Barcelona, was horrified with that name. He said it sounded like the stupidest name of all time to Spanish speakers. So I was very reluctant to let go of that one, but ultimately I was convinced. And I'm glad I was convinced because it opened the door for Estereornis to, to swoop in there. And yeah, I mean, we're we're all really happy with that name. And it was Dan Sepka's Stroke of Genius
1: that uh, that led to it. We know that birds are descendants of dinosaurs, but trying to understand why dinosaurs went extinct 66 million years ago, whereas birds didn't, is a major area of paleontological research. And because the Asteriornus provides the best evidence yet of a modern bird from the Cretaceous period, it sheds light on some of the potential features that birds would have had to have to make it through the extinction event. So Doug and I imagined that discovering and naming the world's oldest modern bird fossil must have been an incredible feeling. Here's what Daniel had to say about the experience.
0: We've been interested in these questions about the mass extinction event at the end of the Cretaceous and the earliest stages of bird evolution for years now. And we've really been limited in in the sort of definitiveness of the statements that we've been able to make by the fact that we haven't had any good fossil evidence of modern birds, from this point in Earth history, I had spent a lot of time imagining sort of what the ideal fossil I would love to find uh, in my career would be. And the answer was a crown bird, so, you know, a, a modern bird from the end of the age of dinosaurs. And the fact that we had a chance to discover in the lab and work on a specimen of exactly that still sort of sends shivers down my spine. It was so exciting. So exciting. In in paleontology, I mean, there's a reason I've wanted to be a paleontologist for so long. I mean, fossils are cool. Dinosaurs are cool. Woolly mammoths are cool. I mean, you you never sort of lose the appreciation for how much of a privilege it is to, to work on these amazing uh, specimens that provide the only direct evidence of major macroevolutionary change that we'll ever actually be able to see. So to have a chance to actually work on and sort of bring to light this incredible specimen that was exactly what we've been hoping to find for so long is an immense privilege. It was such a surprise to actually find that skull inside the the block of rock. And I'll, I'll never forget it, at least for the time being. It, it stands as you know the, the privilege and, and the highlight of my career.
2: In episode 27 of Parsing Science, we spoke with Anjan Buller from Yale University about how the discovery of a 95-million-year-old ichthyornis fossil in 2014 revealed some unexpected insights into the minds and mouths of today's birds. Prior to our interview, Anjan had mentioned in an NPR interview that whenever you fill a gap in our knowledge of evolution, it creates two more, one on either side. Given that Anjan and Daniel are both friends and colleagues, we asked Daniel to discuss the gap that Astriarnas fills and, in turn, what gaps it now creates. We'll hear what he had to say after this short break.
1: Thousands of conversations about scholarly content happen online every day. At Altmetric, we track a range of sources to capture and collate this activity, helping you to monitor and report on the attention surrounding the research you care about. Do you know who's talking about your research? For a free, visually engaging and informative view of the online activity surrounding your scholarly content, visit altmetric.com products. Now back to passing science.
2: Here again is Daniel Field discussing the gaps that the astriarnus both
0: fills and creates. One of the most significant questions at this point is filling in that gap. After birds survived, which we know they did, what were birds actually like? Which groups were really present in the lowermost Paleocene? What was their ecology like? How do organisms survive global calamities like that? And, and how did birds manage to, to survive it in in particular? Those are all really important questions that we'd like to know the answer to on on the flip side sort of if you go back into the cretaceous i mentioned before you know th- this is the oldest modern bird fossil that we found so far but we know that there have to be older modern bird fossils still because modern birds probably originated somewhere between 75 and 100 million years ago so finding earlier fossil birds might shed light on what the earliest stages of paleognath evolution were like. This is the group that, of course, ultimately gave rise to giant monsters like ostriches and emus. So what were the earliest paleognaths like? What were the earliest neoavians like? We don't know. We've never found any fossils of those groups from the age of dinosaurs. And we also don't really know what the most recent common ancestor of all living birds was like in terms of its anatomy and its ecology. And I would love to know what the ancestral modern bird was like, this ancestral bird that today has given rise to almost 11,000 living species. As an evolutionary biologist, I I can hardly think of of a, a research question more interesting than that. So I dearly love to find an even older modern bird from the age of dinosaurs, and I dearly love to find a slightly younger fossil bird from just after the asteroid impact to fill in that important gaping void. That might shed light on the survival of birds after the extinction of the non-avian dinosaurs. So, Unjin is certainly right that those are two gaps that are sort of highlighted by the discovery of this fossil. But you know, prior to the discovery of this fossil, the the gap was really less broken up than it is today. So, I think it goes to show that any discovery is potentially extremely significant and. Um, I think this fossil really goes to show that a single fossil, a single data point, can shed light on a bunch of exciting evolutionary questions. So it seems hard to go out and, and find a, a amazing new fossils, but it really goes to show that these fossils are are out there to be discovered. And I really have no doubt that you know if we have this conversation again in 2030, additional modern birds from both sides of the, the KPG boundary
1: will have come to light, and we'll know a lot more about the subject than we do now. As Daniel mentioned earlier, the discovery of this new crown bird species was accomplished using computed tomography, or CT scanning for short. This technology allowed him and his team to produce 3D cross-sectional images of the Asteriornis, without cutting into the rock that the fossil was encased in. So Doug and I wondered how much this type of work reflects his day-to-day routine as a paleontologist so it all started with something that
0: has become for us totally routine so we take a fossil that we want to know more about that we want to be able to see in high resolution and in three dimensions but we don't want to damage so we take that fossil and we ct scan it so Basically, these high-energy x-rays pass through the block. They get differentially absorbed by the rock surrounding the fossil and the actual fossil bones themselves. And that allows you to sort of peer inside the rock and extract a a three-dimensional model of the bone that is not necessarily visible at the surface of the, the rock block, but can be, in this case, entirely encased in rock. So, it was totally routine that Juan and I took this specimen with some broken limb bones poking out down to the CT scanning facility here at Cambridge and basically popped it in the CT scanner. What was not routine at all was actually getting the data onto the computer screen, thresholding away the rock matrix surrounding the bones, and realizing that we had a, a nearly complete three dimensionally preserved bird skull staring straight out at us from the end of the age of dinosaurs. That was just the most mind blowing moment of our career. So we knew, you know, an hour after popping the specimen into the CT scanner, that we had a very significant specimen on our hands. But from that point onwards, it takes a lot of really, really dedicated, careful work to digitally extract the bones so that they look very, very clear from the block. And that's work that is done largely well, it's, it's funny to use this, this phrase when you're talking about high resolution micro CT scanning, but do, do you have to do it the old fashioned way. So basically, it's sort of like a, a sliced up salami. You've got uh, images of, of cross sections through your fossil specimen uh, on the screen. And then you basically have to color in the individual bones that you see in cross-section in order to generate, after you've done several, you know, a a whole stack coloring in those those cross-sections, you you get a 3D model.
2: Especially being as there are about 11,000 species of birds living today, having a fossil that helps us better understand how they came into being is extremely useful. Combined with large data sets of genomic sequence changes in birds, Daniel and his team were able to estimate at what point in prehistory the estriornis emerged. So we followed up by asking him to tell us more about this process.
0: So most of that segmentation work was done by Juan Benito. Uh, Some of it was done by me and some of it was done by my other PhD student, Albert Chen. But in all, it probably took, it's hard to estimate exactly, but hundreds hundreds of hours, definitely, to extract in as much clarity as we possibly could the anatomy of those bones preserved within the rock so that we could really study the anatomy in great detail and make comparisons with our digital model of the specimen with specimens of of living chicken-like birds and and living duck-like birds, so the day-to-day process for quite a long time uh, during 2019 uh, involved Juan doing a lot of that digital coloring-in work and me staring over his shoulder <laughs> trying to figure out what we were looking at, and I mean that honestly went on for months, and and as the anatomy took shape in in you know, really high resolution, it became clearer and clearer that we were looking at something within this, um, you know, branch of the bird tree of life that includes duck-like birds and chicken-like birds. There were so many features of of the skull that jumped out that told us that that was sort of the evolutionary neighborhood of the bird tree of life that that we um, uh, were looking at. So once the anatomy was really nicely extracted, we sort of set to work making a bunch of anatomical comparisons to code up all of the anatomy that allowed us to perform some phylogenetic analyses to estimate where on the bird tree of life this fossil actually sat. And then, an exciting part of the process, something that you can do with these 3D digital data, is that you can get them 3D printed. So, we did that at, towards the end of the process as well, which allowed us to have sort of enlarged versions of the fossil skull in our hands to sort of turn around at our, at our leisure in order to study the anatomy as, as uh, thoroughly as we possibly could. And those 3D models um, uh, are are also very useful for things like museum displays. So one of the um, probably least significant casualties of the, of the COVID crisis, but a disappointing one nonetheless, is the fact that we had planned a, a museum exhibition opening here at Cambridge to coincide with the publication of the paper. So we had a bunch of these cool 3D printed models of, of bird anatomy that we were going to put on display in the museum uh, to show people sort of what the features of the fossil were that were most significant, how they compare with things like duck-like and and chicken-like birds. And unfortunately, we haven't been able to um, uh, get that that exhibit up and running because the museum, along with everything else, is still shut down. But nonetheless, when the university and the world starts to open up again, whenever that is, we'll be ready to go to get those 3D prints on display to uh, teach the public more about
1: bird anatomy and evolution. We interviewed Daniel while, like us, he was confined at home due to the coronavirus pandemic. This made Doug and I curious, just where the Asteriornus fossil is at the moment, as well as how the pandemic impacts his and his colleagues' ongoing work with the specimen.
0: The rock is locked very securely in the Department of Earth Sciences at, at Cambridge. It's unfortunately stuck there for the time being because we don't have access to um, to any of the university buildings at the moment. But that's another advantage of having those 3D prints. I've got one of those uh, 3D printed skulls on the desk in front of me, so it's been easy to actually continue some of our anatomical comparisons remotely. But the COVID crisis has, in, in some ways, really exemplified one of the most important features of the, these CT scanned data. Um, with, with these CT scans, you really don't need the fossil in front of you in order to, to study it. So I've been working with colleagues around the world studying the anatomy of various different birds based on CT scans that were taken uh, long before the crisis shut down scanning facilities. And so we've been able to, even under quarantine, collect a lot of interesting data about you know bird morphology and evolution and, and share a lot of those data with colleagues around the world uh, from our living rooms. And you know, in some ways, there's no substitute for sitting down with the actual physical specimen itself, whether it's a fossil or a modern anatomical specimen, to really get a sense of, of what the anatomy looks like. But in situations like this one, and in terms of data sharing, it really pays to have access to those digital data on your laptop so you can make some uh, anatomical progress even when you're not able to, to get into a museum or the lab.
2: That was Daniel Field discussing his article, Late Cretaceous Neothornite from Europe Illuminates the Origins of Crown Birds, published in the journal Nature on March 18, 2020. You'll find a link to their paper at parsingscience.org e75, along with transcripts, bonus audio clips, and other materials that we discussed during the
1: episode. We often hear from listeners curious about how Doug and I put the show together, so we collected the most frequently asked questions and posted our responses at parsingscience.org FAQ. There, you'll find our origin story and information on how we identify and interview potential guests. You'll also find out who we have scheduled for upcoming episodes, how to suggest a guest for the show, and more.
2: Next time, in episode 76 of Parsing Science, we'll talk with Emily Ho about her research and why some people choose to remain ignorant of information that, while unpleasant, stands to improve their future decision-making.
1: Well, you know, they start putting calorie labels on everything, and then you go to the theater and you really want popcorn, and then you look at the calories, and then you're watching your movie without popcorn, and you're just a lot less happy. And was the information a good thing or not. Maybe it would have been better for you not to know the calories, you know, and you would have, you know, had a much better experience at the theater.
2: We hope that you'll join us again.